Welcome to Myra Talks Trash. This podcast is all about trash, waste, food waste. I am Michael Myra and I am passionate about how to avoid, collect and treat trash. I will talk about trash with scientific experts, but also representatives of hotels, restaurants, supermarkets, the food producing industry, of operators of waste treatment plants, but also consultants, lobbyists. In this episode, I'm talking to Marius Zürcher. Marius is co-founder of the company 1520, a Dutch consulting company specialized on hospitality and Generation Y. Marius also writes a monthly blog for the FCSI, the Food Service Consultants Society International. With him, I'm discussing how sustainable the hospitality industry is and how it might recover from the pandemic. Welcome to Myra Talks Trash. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about sustainability. Okay, and, and who are you? I'm uh, Marius Zürcher. Yeah, Zürcher. Uh, is there a connection to Zurich, to Switzerland? I, I see a lot of winter paintings in your background. Yeah, that is my Swiss wall, as I call it. I am Swiss, but uh, the name Zürcher is not related to uh, Zurich. Okay two Zürcher families, I think, originally. And one of them is from Zurich, but I'm not one of those. Okay. <laughs> and Marius, what, what is your background? What do you do? Well, I have a hospitality background, but now I uh, run my own uh, millennial and Gen Z marketing consulting uh, firm, which uh, goes beyond just hospitality. Okay. What, what do you mean with hospitality background? Uh, did you work in, in, in hotels, in restaurants? Yeah, I'm from a hotel and restaurant family. So really, since I was a little kid, I grew up in hotels and restaurants. And later, I also, later I also worked there until two years ago. Okay. And in which, which countries did you gain your experience? In Switzerland, Germany, and the Netherlands. When you said in the hospitality business, I, I also know the term Horeca coming from the recycling industry and just working in the Horeca business for about two years. And I always thought that Horeca ho, stands for hotel, restaurants, and catering, because we have a lot of catering customers. Yeah. But recently, I found out that the CA is for cafe. Yeah. And I also found out that it has a connection to the Netherlands. So you're living in the Netherlands. Yeah. Can, you explain, can you please explain why, why the connection to the Netherlands is? I think the, the Dutch basically came up with that term. Here, it's just the, the term we use for uh, hospitality. And yeah, Horeca is hotels, restaurants, and cafes. But in the Netherlands, a cafe is not a place where you get coffee, but a bar. You also studied hospitality. An, an MBA about hospitality management, is that correct? Yeah, my bachelor's degree was a more general international business administration in economics and management. And then uh, my MBA was hospitality and services management. What can you remember from, from that MBA? What, what do you learn in an MBA for hospitality management? Oh. <laughs> what is most important? Uh, what, what did you like most? What helped you a lot uh, the most for, for um, your day-to-day -day business? Well, I think that's hard to say. It really depends on the teachers you have, I think. I had a couple of very good teachers and they mostly taught me stuff that I didn't know from my own experience. So they really taught us the details of how the international, the big hotel chains, how they actually work. That's something I didn't know. But overall, an MBA that's recommended you do if you studied business before, but it's also a lot of reputation if you studied business before. And, and you're running um, an, a company called 1520. Um, what are you doing in, uh, with 5020? Well, we help companies to attract millennials and uh, Gen Z customers and employees, basically. So it's marketing and also employer branding. Okay. In yeah. the hospitality industry or not exclusively? No, it's not exclusively hospitality, though we have 
had a lot of uh, hospitality customers because of my background we just knew them basically so that's how it started now and and we means you and your girlfriend is that yeah, correct yes okay and does your girlfriend also have a background in in the hospitality industry or uh, well she didn't as a as a child but then we met actually when we were 17 and 16 and since then she was also involved basically in the family businesses okay and who is responsible for which which tasks in the in the company in terms of the consulting we both do uh, everything but then as far as the rest goes she's more responsible for the bookkeeping and i do more of the content and the social media and stuff like that why why is your company called 1520 what 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 what, what is the origin what is the the reason why as i said we now do millennials and gen z but when we started it was only uh, millennials because we're also millennials and they were very relevant at the time and we picked 1520 because there is a particular book it's called uh, the tanning of america by a writer called steve stout and it's about how hip-hop has affected um, business worldwide and in it he calls millennials the hip-hop generation because okay. they grew up parallel basically and they were influenced by it whether they know it or not and we also grew up as hip-hop fans so we were looking for a name and we couldn't find one and then it clicked basically and i said how about 1520 because 1520 sedgwick avenue which is an address in new york is where the story goes hip-hop was born so we wanted a name that's a reference but also not too obvious yeah cool very very authentic yeah and <laughs> this brings us uh then to to the next topic i want to talk about in a minute but maybe could you explain a little bit more in detail who is your customer um who are you working together with 1520 is it the, the business directly or, or the companies or with consultants our customers until now mostly were other consultants i don't really know how that happened but it just happened that way and they were usually older consultants that wanted us to look at their work that they're doing for customers and maybe freshen it up a little for younger consumers so that's what we did a lot and then lately we've also been doing a startup consulting yeah. for young companies a lot of the times people we met when we went back to school they want to know if they are already out of touch or if they really still understand the the generation yeah. yeah part that's part of it but also they we could just help them with everything basically not just with the millennials and gen z part i i found you um because you you're writing for the fcsi food service consultants society international you write a monthly article monthly blog for them yeah how did it come well, I uh, was once invited to a panel about uh, millennials, I think, if I remember it right. And uh, there I met the editor of the Food Service Consultant magazine. And then a few years later, I wrote a paper for school, which I was a big fan of. <laughs> so I asked him if maybe they wanted to publish it. And that didn't work out because it's too uh, academic. <laughs> but he did ask me to write a monthly uh, column for them because apparently he did like the writing. Let, let's talk about that essay. Um, I already mentioned the, the term authenticity. You wrote about an, an essay on authenticity in restaurants. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's a very uh, complex subject. Could be a whole episode, I think, basically. <laughs> but it's really about that authenticity has become a very big buzzword in hospitality, especially in uh, restaurants. And the restaurants, it has the biggest effect on is uh, ethnic restaurants. And I wanted to write about what that effect is. So how does it affect them positively, but also negatively? And what does the term actually mean? Because like many buzzwords, people use it a lot, but they don't know what it really means. You mentioned ethnic uh, restaurants. Um, you, you quoted Kay, and he, he found out, or he, he quoted, uh, reported about this study um, done with Yelp users where they found out that for ethnic restaurants, non-European restaurants, non-Western non restaurants, yeah, uh, like I think Chinese, Indian food, 
authenticity is also related to dirty floors he, he writes and 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 cheap um, inventory maybe yeah. tools yeah but for western restaurants italian restaurant french restaurant uh, spanish restaurant it's related to to quality aspects do you agree on that or yeah i think that basically the point of the paper is that people came up with their own definition of authenticity and it appears that a lot of customers the things they think are authentic in uh, non-western restaurants are like you mentioned have often have negative connotations aside from the food and in western restaurants that's not the case but that leads to a trap what they call the authenticity trap because then as a chinese restaurant for example you can either make your inventory fancier and stuff like that but people will perceive you as less authentic so your yelp score goes down but the authenticity can only take you up so far because then you run into the ceiling of your inventory and your service and so on so they can never go beyond a certain level because of this authenticity trap whereas a lot of western restaurants do not have that problem yeah you you mentioned a yelp score um, can you explain Yelp? Because I think it, it more or less was established in the time about 2005, something like that, where the Gen Y generation earned their first money yeah, and spent their first money. So it's, it's mostly for Gen Y people, right? But yeah. what is it? Can you, can you explain? I think the Gen Y, they started to make it big, but I think a lot of people now use it. Uh, it's a review site for restaurants mostly. I think you can review everything now, doctors, stores, but it's mostly for restaurants and it's probably the biggest one in the world. So people review restaurants they went to. And because it's so big, people now check it before they go to a restaurant. So your Yelp score is really important. So, and for, for Gen Y, what, what do you think? Do they prefer Yelp or TripAdvisor? TripAdvisor or third platform or what is, what is the most popular on the, on the country? Okay. I think in most parts of the world, Yelp is the biggest, but TripAdvisor is also pretty big, especially for hotels. Uh, some, some just check it on, on Google. Yeah. yeah. They also have a lot of comments already. And yeah. okay. But let's talk about, you mentioned authenticity is a buzzword yeah i think for the hospitality industry sustainability more and more becomes the next buzzword yeah? and i more more and more find out that most people can't make heads heads or tails of it when they have little knowledge about it yeah so some companies do a lot of advertising yeah we are so green we 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 deal with this and that uh, sdg goal huh? sustainability sustainability development goals and i think it's it's very difficult because the link between yeah we are so sustainable and, and so on and greenwashing is obvious for me how do you think about that about greenwashing and sustainability in the hospitality industry i think uh, i agree with your point basically authenticity might be a buzzword but it's also really important especially to young customers if you're not perceived to be authentic and then you have a big problem, especially in the future. So if you are being perceived as someone that greenwashes rather than actually green, that's going to be a real problem for you because people just feel it. They know you're not being real with them and that can only take you so far. And do you think that hygiene uh, will be the next password maybe? Of course, now hygiene is a huge uh, topic do you think it, it came to stay and and do you think that restaurants hotels that now invest in hygiene uh, in i don't know air treatment solutions in in uh, sustainable hygienic um, weight, food waste collection systems do you think they will use it also for uh, to advertise for their restaurant hotel yeah i think that uh, hygiene is going to be more relevant now even after the pandemic, because I think it's gonna stay with a lot of people. I think it has been quite a traumatic event for many. Investing in hygiene and also advertising with it will be helpful in some way. Well, let's let's move to your to one of your articles you wrote for the FCSI about how restaurants can prevent food waste. 
Yeah. Um, there you you quoted the study I think from from the UK, yeah. where they said or they found out that if restaurants, hotels, uh, commercial kitchens invest one pound in 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 measurement in in something that can help to reduce food waste, yeah. they make a profit for approximately seven pounds. Yeah. Yeah? In a couple of years, I think. Yeah. Do, do you think this is just, this is uh, this is maybe a little bit exaggerated, or or do you think this is possible? I think it's probably well, it's not exaggerated precisely, but it's probably uh, an average because some companies made a lot more money and most made less. But I think it is uh, a profitable investment. Yeah, but you 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 worked in the hospitality industry. Uh, how is it how is it possible that I can um, save uh, money by factor seven? Um, I've uh, I've read similar um, articles between factor three and maybe factor ten. Yeah, so it's you you have to buy less food, you have to prepare, cook less food, and you have to pay for less uh, food waste disposal. So is yeah. there something missing or? No, I think that's the biggest point. I think most restaurants go bankrupt because they throw away too much food. Their inventory is too big and they lose too much of it. Yeah. So finding ways to reduce that is, uh, is huge for the financial uh, side of the restaurant. In one of my last interviews, I interviewed Babak and Nina, two scientists. And, and since then I've uh, still read a lot about um, all-you-can-eat restaurants because this was the topic back then to, to reduce food waste in all-you-can-eat restaurants. And I found out that there are already uh, all-you-can-eat restaurants where you don't have to pay for the food to enter the restaurant, but also to you have to pay for everything you waste, you, you yeah. leave on your plate. Your plate waste gets weighted and then you have to pay I don't know, X euros or dollars per 100 gram of, of waste. Yeah. Uh, have, you, have you heard about that? Or do you know about similar um, ways how to avoid food waste? Well, I haven't heard about that uh, specifically. I think it's, it's clever maybe, but I think it's mostly a marketing technique more than anything else. Because you could also just factor in the waste into the price to begin with, you know? It got people talking about them, probably. So that's clever. And and I don't know. I'm curious what you would think. Um, it what effect it would have. Yeah, maybe there are the people on the one side that say, okay, yeah, I will eat everything I put on my plate because I don't want yeah. to pay for it twice. Yeah. I have to pay the lump sum to get in the restaurant, and then I have to pay related to my to my food waste. Or others say, yeah, okay, they really want to 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 be sustainable, to save, to, to do something good for the environment. So therefore I, I should really eat everything and do not waste it. But on the other hand, there are people that say, no, I, I want to stay slim. I, I, I don't know. And they, they don't care if they have leftovers on their plate. Yeah. What do you think, Chen? Why people, are they more on this, on which one of the two sides are they? I think you can't generalize fully but i think mostly uh, younger generations gen y gen z are uh, quite environmentally conscious so i do think they want to reduce waste but i'm not sure how aware they are how much waste restaurants do produce also the the tactic this particular restaurant used i don't know i mean if you get a lot of plates back that aren't finished instead of making the people pay for it that's one solution, but I think that maybe you're doing something wrong as a restaurant if you get too many plates back unfinished. So that means either your food isn't good enough or more likely you're serving too much of it. And I know there are then exceptions, no matter how much you serve, something will always come back by some people. But if you look at the average, usually your plate should be empty, otherwise you're serving too much. Well, let, let's let's talk about a little bit the, what what restaurants can do to prevent food waste in total. Yeah. Baba Canina, they mentioned there are three types of food waste, the preparation waste first in the kitchen, then maybe plate waste, what it's coming back from the customers. And in the end of the day, the food surplus 
over possible overproduction. Yeah. You mentioned if you have too many plate wastes, you either put too much on the plate or you do something wrong. Your 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 meals are not good. Yeah, you're not cooking good. Maybe you should change the chef. Do you have uh, also suggestions to reduce preparation waste and overproduction? So the two other categories. Yeah, well, the, the preparation waste, there will always be some of it, but there are things you can do to tackle that. One is you can, there are techniques to cut vegetables in a way that they can be stored longer. Uh, how, how is that? You, you cut it and then you store it? Yeah, well, you can do that, yeah. If you, a lot of restaurants take a lot of preparation, so you do have to cut the vegetables and then you can keep them for a while. And depending on how you cut them, you can keep them longer. Okay. I don't know the science behind that. I just know that it works. <laughs> yeah. A lot of uh, Asian cuisines have been doing that for a long time. And a lot of Western cuisines have refused to, uh, to learn it. So, so they cut it and then uh, put it in the fridge or in the freezer? Yeah. Or? yeah. It just stays fresh longer if you cut it a certain way rather than a different way. But there are also cutting techniques for meat and fish which allow you to use more meat and fish, so you throw less of it away. And that's all things you can teach. There's also storage, different storage methods, aside from the cutting, different types of materials, different temperatures, different containers that people aren't aware of. And a lot of it will allow you to keep stuff longer. Yeah. A lot of restaurants don't do it. But you mentioned the cutting techniques, yeah. In 2019, I was traveling a lot and, I think I don't know if it was a, a cruise ship or or a casino where I saw a woman cutting. It, she was in the fruit food prep for a huge, I don't know, restaurant, hotel, cruise ship. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But so she was just cutting fruit all her day, all day long. Huh? And she had a watermelon. And the first thing she did, she cut a cube out of it, threw away everything, and then cut it the cube in small cubes yeah and i was just looking on everything she wasted and thought this this isn't this isn't possible uh, but of course she is much much quicker and yeah. if she has to cut i don't know five tons of water uh, of fruits a day uh, with watermelons and whatever that's just more economic but yeah. i think it shows perfectly that the the potential for the hospitality industry is enormous to save yeah, to become more sustainable Let's talk about the third category. So you mentioned possibilities to reduce uh, preparation waste, plate waste. The third category, food surplus overproduction. Do you have a, an idea how we could reduce that as well? Well, there's simply uh, the forecasting, which is something you have to get a feeling for. I guess you can also use software, but I don't know how uh, viable it is for small restaurants. And I think most restaurants are small. That's something that people forget. So uh, McDonald's can do software forecasting, but your average restaurant can't do it. But yep. you can still learn it. You just have to get a feeling for it. And I think it's important. And the other thing is that there are even tips and tricks, basically. In many cases, the overproduction is only, or the waste, it balances, basically. Often, it's just a few of your meals. So just take them out of the menu and come up with something else. And often that brings down the overproduction and the waste by quite a lot. So both the preparation waste and the overproduction. To produce a, a scarcity on your menu. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's also a thing. People are afraid of running out of dishes, but I don't think they should be. Because if you run out of stuff, okay, it can sometimes hurt you and it shouldn't be every dish every day at, by 1 p.m. But a certain scarcity is also uh, can be helpful as a marketing technique, basically. Yeah. Marius, you, you mentioned McDonald's. Your colleague, as I would, would call him now, uh, at the FCSI, he wrote, an, Michael Jones, he wrote an article, I think it was in December, also about sustainability, about food waste in the hospitality industry. And he mentioned the example of, of McDonald's. Um, I think they have the goal to reach the uh, goal for 2025 to become to 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 just use 100% recyclable um, packaging to recycle more in their restaurants. And he also wrote that in 2018 McDonald's did just 
recycle waste in 10% of all their stores of yeah. all the which I thought is as well unbelievable. Huh? Yeah. Do you know about similar impressive examples like that where you really see the huge potential uh, how we could that we we still have a huge potential to save food waste, yeah? prevent food waste. I, uh, I think McDonald's is always uh, a good example for uh, everything you can talk about because they're so big and everything they do has a massive impact. And I also, you mentioned the 10%. I think sometimes people are being overly harsh on uh, McDonald's and so on because they're very big companies and like, you know, like a air freight carrier, they, it takes a while to turn. <laughs> but I think if they do it, then it has a huge, huge impact. So yeah. I think, yeah, they deserve support whenever they do something that is good. But also small restaurants, which together are also a huge part of the industry, should do more. They sometimes try to push it off onto the bigger ones. Yeah, well, definitely not, not everything Michael and McDonald's uh, does is, is bad. I, I know, for example, that they really now start to use uh, innovative ma machines and systems to collect food waste. Yeah. Uh, they also are our customers already yeah as you said it's just an impressive example of course they are also operating in different countries worldwide in, the, in some countries for example recycling is not at that level that we, that we are doing it in, in europe I, I don't know if you are familiar with the the example in austria i'm austrian in austria a lot of people know the example uh, that in in vienna our biggest city almost, I think, 2 million inhabitants, they throw away as much bread as the people in Graz, second biggest city, are yeah. every day. Yeah, that's crazy. Which is, which is insane. Yeah? Yeah. But yeah, I think in the UK, restaurants, they throw away more meals than the UK would need to cover uh, all the required meals, basically, by people who don't have enough to eat, by far, several times over. And uh, for example, I think it started in Zurich, actually. Uh, at least it's a Swiss Swiss company called Espa Chain, uh, where they sell bread from partner companies, but one day old bread for half the price. The original bakery. Yes. Yeah. The, the the bread. Do you know of similar examples in the Netherlands? Or I do know that a lot of stores actually are doing that themselves here so bakeries sell day-old bread instead of throwing it away so it happens a lot on a small scale actually on a big scale there's always something but i think it needs to become more structural across the whole economy because at the end of the day all those examples they are nice but they are outliers yeah but of course the best thing would be to prevent food waste, like uh, this S company Espa, for example, does to, to sell one day old bread, which of course is still hygienic, healthy. Uh, it's yeah. just not so fresh anymore, but it's perfect. I think most people in different parts of the world would be very happy to have such high quality of food. So um, this is of course the best to prevent first way. And the second possibility maybe is before we recycle it, before we put it in an AD plant, produce energy and fertilizer. Um, I know that there are also more and more organizations that try to be able to feed uh, food waste to, to animals again. Yeah. Because I don't know, uh, the animal byproduct directive from the European Union uh, almost 10 years ago now forbid to feed K3 waste, waste with animal product to animals and because of a lot of diseases and you know, for a reason but these organizations they say hey in japan in in south korea they know about the problems of e coli of salmonella therefore they cook the waste the food waste and then feed it to the pigs as as it's safe then yeah do, do you think this would be a good approach or you personally if you eat are you vegetarian or do you eat meat uh, once once in a while? Occasionally, yeah, a few times a year. Would you have a problem if you know that the pig, uh, whatever you're eating, uh, has eaten your food waste before? Or do you think this is the perfect cycle, maybe? 
I, uh, I think, uh, well, a lot of the pigs humans eat didn't have a very great life and you don't want to know what they had to eat. So I think uh, the food waste would often have been a better option if you really uh, think about it. So I'm not too concerned about that. And I mean, it used to be the case here too. I remember when I uh, grew up in a hotel in Switzerland, we still had a big blue barrel where we put in food waste and the farmer would pick it up and he was a pig farmer. Yeah, I think it used to be like that. So it can be again, and especially in Japan and South Korea, if they figured out a way to do it safely, I think Europe shouldn't be so hesitant to uh, learn. But as we can see now uh, during the pandemic, Europe is very much uh, hesitant to learn from Asia. Um, let's move a little bit from your from food waste specifically to to to, to climate change in general. Uh, you also wrote an article about that uh, climate change and in, in, in hospitality, the influence of the hospitality. Yeah. Um, and what I liked most was where you quoted. Uh, I think it was the not the EPD, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, yeah. U.S. Environmental Agency. Protection Agency, uh, which said that, hey, restaurants, you should, you should, uh, I don't know, try to get some trees in front of your restaurant because then you you save four degrees, so you can uh, put down the AC a little bit. Yeah. Did you did you he, did you learn such tips on on university as well or in in the MBA? In, uh, I think in a lot of business schools still, sustainability is also very much a topic because like you said, it's a buzzword, but it's not really addressed uh, in detail. So a lot of it is uh, articles about uh, sustainable, sustainability development goals or whatever they are called. I've had to read them a lot in my school career, but yeah, there's no real detail like that. So I, I found that out myself, not uh, in school. I think business schools need to do a lot more in terms of teaching about sustainability. To write about it, to read about it, uh, and and to speak about it is one thing, but the most important thing is to do it. Yeah. yeah. So companies should really maybe do or act sustainable first, and then they can talk about it. Most companies talk about it, and if you really check it, you see that that's mostly greenwashing, or at least what I criticize. Yeah. Um, before we, we try to do a, some predictions, maybe look into the future, because we've also written some articles about that, I would like to talk about one article. Well, actually, you wrote, I think, three about them tipping uh, with racism. You, I think you quoted, I have to check uh, who it was, but um, I, I just have to read it out that, I, that we don't mix it up. But you wrote, the average hourly tip for Lati white, Latino, black, and Asian waiters in the US is seven, six, five sixty, and four eighty US dollars. Yeah. Uh, how, how is that? And and what can you what can you uh, suggest for us? Uh, we always when we tip when we go in a restaurant, do the tipping in the end, should we always try to keep keep that in mind that we try to of course tip everyone the same? Or do you have other tips or do you would you suggest to to, to don't have tipping at all and just uh, pay more for the meal and then the, the restaurant owner should pay everyone equally or what would you suggest? Oh, well, for that statistic in particular, I think we have to look at it two ways. There are two uh, reasons for that, basically. One is that within the same type of restaurants, people of colors are being tipped less than white waiters and that's must come down to, to racism, either uh, knowing or unknowing among the customers. So that's one part. But another part is that the restaurants where the, the, the people of colors are waiters are often located in lower income neighborhoods. So their customer base is also uh, less likely to be able to tip more. So the difference in tips comes down to two different factors. It's not entirely one or the other. And I think that that shows a problem in the industry because in a lot of countries, the wages of these people or the income is not dependent on the wages so much as the tipping. But that leads to inequality because of the two factors I uh, just mentioned. So 
what can be done about that. I think restaurants have tried to eliminate tipping, like I wrote about in the article, even high profile restaurants. And the problem is that that wasn't really popular among customers and even staff because uh, the customers missed the agency basically of being able to tip and the staff missed the instant gratification. So as long as there are many competitors out there which don't follow the same path, it's very difficult to implement it. And a lot of restaurants had to uh, move away from that. So I think I do support the idea of getting rid of tipping, but it can only happen if it comes from the top down. It has to be legislated. And that doesn't have to be a ban on tipping, but what's very important is that there's a higher minimum wage for the hospitality industry, because only then you can tackle that income inequality because people aren't dependent on the tips, but rather their wages. And yeah, to answer your question, I do think people should keep stuff like that in mind when they go to restaurants. Yeah. Well, the thing is, at the moment, in most countries, you, you, you yeah. all the restaurants are shut down anyway, so it's just takeaway, and mo there, mostly there's then no tipping. Of course, now when I do, when I go to restaurants, pick up something, I tip as well, because I, I know that how difficult it is for them at the moment to, to survive as a, as a restaurant, um, no many restaurant owners, and yeah, we can just hope that we get out of this pandemic as soon as possible. Yeah. And well, talking about the pandemic, I think last week, a couple of days ago, uh, the FCSI published your latest article where you wrote about how the pandemic can influence the, the labor shortages we have in the hospitality industry. We had in the hospitality industry before, and you did a prediction what would happen uh, after the pandemic. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Well, there are uh, people that think that the labor shortage will uh, be less severe because the industry will be smaller. And I think that might be true for a while, but I think the industry will uh, bounce back quite fast because after being inside for so long, there will be a demand for uh, restaurants and entertainment and so on. So I think it will uh, be faster than people think. Also because probably property prices will have gone down at least a little. So new restaurants will uh, start fast. And I think, so not only will we get back to old levels of the staff shortage, I think it will be worse because a lot of people that were in the industry have left it by now, either because they had to, because they didn't have job or because they decided the industry is not as stable as we thought maybe we should transition to something more stable like uh, healthcare. Totally agree. So I think it will be worse than before. Yeah, I think there will be fewer newcomers because they saw how unstable the industry can be and fewer uh, people that are already in the industry because they transitioned to something else. Yeah. Okay. And you also wrote an article about the trends in hospitality uh, for 2021. Um, so still the second year of the pandemic, as I would call it, you, you mainly mentioned three points at home dining, yeah. automation and experimentation. Can you please go a little bit into detail about all three of them? Yeah. Well, at home dining, partly that's just the regular pickup and delivery, I think will stay even restaurants that didn't do it before the pandemic. I think they will have to continue to do so because people got used to it. And I think they should do so because it's an extra income stream, even if there might be another pandemic, let's hope not, but uh, I think it makes your business more stable. And the at-home dining experiences refers to basically that pickup and delivery doesn't have to be like it is usually, it doesn't have to be a dominoes, so to say. Yeah, and what, what is it usually? So eat out of a, of a, Car, uh, carport uh, package yeah, or plastic yeah packaging uh, what do you think about packaging uh, for takeaways uh, what trends do you see here do you think plastic bioplastic packaging will uh, will be the way to go or um, plastic or packaging that you can reuse um, or, or what trends do you see here well, there are two things back to the at-home dining experience. I think that means that you can do things that are more special. For example, I mentioned a restaurant that delivers a paella 
and they deliver it in the paella pan in a pizza carton. So that at home, it feels like you're in the restaurant instead of eating the paella out of a and then they plastic. Pick up, they pick up the, the pan. Yeah, I think so. They pick it up. So that's an example. But the packaging itself, I think, will have to become more sustainable because customers will increasingly demand it. And I think legislation will increasingly demand it. I hear a lot of people talk about reusable uh, packaging. I'm not really a believer in that because restaurants really have a lot of uh, liability when it comes to people getting sick and so on. They'd rather have stuff that is being thrown away than they have to reuse. Maybe it's not quite as clean as they want it to be. So you think it's a hygienic issue again? Yeah, it, it puts a lot of control into other people's hands that you want into your own hands as a restaurant. And I think that's not really a popular thing. So I don't believe in that as much as other people do. Sorry. If it's reusable, you can just put it in a, in a dishwasher and then things shouldn't be a problem. Huh? Over yeah. 70 degrees. Even if it's not your fault, if people get sick, they might blame you publicly because they figure, oh, I use the reusable packaging or something like that. And just the public reaction to that could be bad even if you didn't do anything. Yeah. So even if it, it might just be paranoia, I think it would mostly be fine. But I still think restaurants worry about that because there's just a lot of uncontrollable factors, even if it's in theory safe. So I believe more in sustainable packaging that can be uh, sustainably broken down rather than reusable packaging, personally. Because you do have to rely on the people bringing it back and a lot of people won't bring it back. I think there are ways to to have a high rate of returns, but uh, I, I agree with you. What do you think about the second uh, example you mentioned, automation? We we have robot waiters uh, when we are allowed to go back to the restaurants, or what can be automated in the hospitality industry? What do you think? I actually wrote uh, my thesis about uh, the introduction of AI and robots in uh, in. Uh hotels mostly, but also restaurants. And I looked at what young customers, how they would theoretically react to automation in different parts. So in the restaurant, in uh, the front desk, in wellness, and so on, yeah. And my results were that they mostly think it's fine everywhere, except for where you are physically, where the robot or the software would have physical control over you. So wellness, it was very unpopular. Restaurants, they were fine with it. Just as fine as the front desk, basically. So I think there's a big future for automation in restaurants. However, there's one factor. There is basically, there is a line where the human interaction becomes more important than the speed or the hygiene. So you, if you eliminate too much, then people won't come. But if you add a little bit of it, they will come and maybe even more than they usually would have because your service is faster because it might be cleaner and so on so i think in a restaurant every aspect is open for automation but the industry has to find out where the balance lies and in terms of finances i think it's expensive now but the technology acceleration is so fast that it will become a reality uh, quite soon sooner than many people think, I think. Uh, but, well, I think for, I don't know, business hotels, uh, three-star, four-star hotels, yeah. used to, to do the check-in 24-7 uh, just with, with, a, with a computer and then they get their key uh, or get their code for, for the room. I think people got used to it here. And in the back of house, um, as I'm working for a company where we produce systems where you can uh, collect food waste more or less automatically you don't have to carry it down into the basement and so on uh, i think a lot is going on in that direction i think also um robots um sorting um or putting dishes or the plates into the dishwasher and getting it out and sorting it uh, is the next next thing we will see heavily and uh, yeah automation i totally agree with you will of course also be um, um, increasing heavily um, in, in hospitality. Your third example was or idea or thought of, of, of trend um, that you see 
was the experimentation. Yeah. In, in, well, please explain it on your own. Um, it depends on the country, but in a lot of countries, there isn't a lot of room, or <laughs> before the pandemic, there wasn't a lot of room for uh, more restaurants because the industry was quite successful in a way. So uh, there were a lot of restaurants and the pressure was very high. The rents are very high. So there wasn't a lot of room to, if you were able to open a restaurant, there wasn't a lot of room to experiment. You had to play it safe. And even then it didn't work out in many uh, situations. But I think the pandemic, because so many restaurants will go bankrupt, I think in many countries they talk about 50, 60% won't make it through, if not more. There will be a window where there is a lot of space and a lot of uh, space means prices will go down for that space. And I think that will allow some fresh new ideas to emerge in the restaurant industry as there is a little more room to breathe when you open a restaurant, at least for a while. So there's more room to experiment and a lot of experiments can turn out to be successful. So that means once the prices are have gone up again, the industry will be a little more colorful than it might have been before the pandemic. Maybe, that's what I think at least. Do you have an idea if you would have to, or if you would start a restaurant, maybe not now, but let's say in half a year, what would you do? Would it be vegan, vegetarian? Would it be, how would it look like? Something that I personally uh, believe is I am not a vegetarian officially, but I am mostly, and the rest of my family is vegetarian. And I do believe that we have to, we need a lot more vegetarians or people eating mostly vegetarians in the world simply because of the climate. But I don't think personally, I sympathize with vegetarian restaurants, even vegan restaurants. But if I would open a restaurant now, my goal would, I think, would be to not be 100% vegetarian, but rather have a little bit of meat and have that meat be of very high quality to educate basically the consumer in what, how much meat should you eat and also how better quality meat, what it tastes like, basically, that it's simply better for you. So I would like to see more better meat in restaurants. And that's also what I would do. Fewer meat, but better. So you think that trend towards less meat will definitely continue? Yeah. Because in one of your articles you wrote, uh, meat is responsible for a loss of biodiversity, one of the biggest drivers of the deforestation and the main source of water pollution. Simply put, and world hunger. Pardon? And world hunger. Yeah, and simply put, one of the main causes of man-made climate change. Um, I think the, <coughs> the fake meat is quite popular in the Netherlands. You yeah. are the front runners. Yeah, uh, we have a lot of companies. Pardon? We have a lot of small companies that uh, make very good stuff and they're being bought up by uh, big companies like Unilever and McDonald's and so on. So it's really somehow it has become a high-tech industry in the Netherlands. What do you think? Which way will uh, McDonald's choose? Uh, I definitely think that they won't um, become a fully meatless restaurant, but more and more burgers will be meatless. Or what do yeah. you? Think? Yeah, I think so. the The problem with something like McDonald's is is that it's so big that it's very difficult for them to transition into anything really. I once read an example that they wanted to make a burger with avocado on it. The, the product designers came up with that and then they did the math and they found out that there aren't enough avocados in the world to make that burger for McDonald's. No. Yeah. So <laughs> that's the case with everything that come up, you know? So it will take a while for them to transition away from meat a long time, but I think it is something they want to do because the meat industry really is in many ways a very shady industry, especially if it's on a large scale. And I don't think they want the headache. So, but it will take a while. And I think part of that will be meat replacements and part of that will be eventually the laboratory meat. But yeah, it's gonna take a few more years to decades, I think, depending on uh, 
if there will be breakthroughs or not. Let's move to the last article you wrote for the FCSI. I want to talk about, I think the title was what restaurants can learn from the pandemic. Mostly you wrote about two things, the delivery and pickups. We, I think, already taught, uh, talked about that. And second thing was extra comfort and maximize space. Yeah. When I read that, I thought, yeah, of course it's possible. Extra comfort is always something um, the, the customers would appreciate, but they would have to pay for it. Huh? Of course, if you have a restaurant uh, in 2019 with 100 tables and you want to open it in 2021 with 50 tables, do you have to charge more? Do you think people are willing to pay for it after the pandemic? Uh, I think partly it can be compensated by offering a pickup and delivery, which many restaurants didn't do before. I think so partly they can compensate fewer seats with that. I even think a lot of restaurants might never be regular restaurants again, but they'll transition into becoming what they call ghost kitchens. So they only do delivery. You can't even pick it up anymore. They don't have a counter, basically. I already uh, saw articles about that happening increasingly in California restaurants just shutting down and turning into ghost kitchens because really it makes them more money than having an actual uh, restaurant because the rent the rent can in so many places is so high that you can't compensate it even with the customers so you might as well only deliver it will be a transition phase for customers to pay maybe more but i think in a lot of places it is necessary especially in for example germany a lot of restaurants are too cheap and it's not sustainable the food can't be sustainable, but it's also not economically sustainable. A lot of these uh, people work too much and it's too precarious. So it has to change and eventually customers will adapt. Marius, uh, last question. What are your plans for the future? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most difficult question. In the... And also I think the last year has taught us not to uh, plan too much. <laughs> no five-year plans anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I don't know, I want to uh, grow 1520. I also want to uh, make more content. That's uh, mostly it. I wish you all the best. I will keep uh, reading your articles at the FCSI and on your homepage. All the best for you and 1520, you and your girlfriend. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for the very interesting talk. Yeah, thank you for having me on.